Hey, what's going on, day travelers? I'm Jason, and I'm here interviewing park rangers and outdoor enthusiasts just like you, getting their story and tips so you can be ready for your next adventure. I'm here with Thomas Vandenberg. He is the chief of interpretation at Big Bend National Park. We're gonna deep dive into everything you need to know before venturing out there. I think that's the only time I didn't go was the winter time. Every every I even came one time during this time of the year, and it was still pretty nice. But then again, it, most of the time I was just driving around because you guys have a lot of lot of um, uh, what do you call it dirt bike or not dirt bike, but off roading. Yeah, we have a lot of un- unimproved dirt roads that you can explore, and it's funny that when most of our visitors come, it's in the winter. And the temperatures are perfect, but um, a lot of the plants are dormant that time of the year. It is our, it's a very dry time of the year. Um, so there are, you know, big parts of the park that, you know, they're always very scenic, but they, they look brown. You know, the grass is brown. A lot of the shrubs don't have leaves that time of the year uh, because it is winter after all. And then the summer months, when we get our lowest visitation, the park is just incredible looking. It's just so lush and different and so a lot of people that have been here many times in the winter, they decide, well, I'm going to check it out in the summer one one year. And uh, again, it's another example of people just being kind of blown away with what they're able to discover in the summer. Right, exactly. So now that we're talking about visitors and the time of year, can you give us some tips on kind of like reservation on how, like, how should they try to reserve? Because then I think they're, their your res- reservation is very limited and if you got if they does fall up what are like the alternatives they can do because i think the closest city to you guys is Terlingua and that's a ghost town so it's kind of like also pretty hard to find lodging at, at that point yeah so um in the park we do have about 200 campground sites um distributed among three campgrounds we also have um about a hundred backcountry campsites, and those are out. It's kind of unique for a national park. We have what we call primitive roadside campsites, and they're out along jeep roads. Um, and some of them, some of them require maybe a two-hour drive on a gravel road to get to these designated little campsites out in the backcountry of the park. We also have uh, about 50 uh, hike-in backcountry sites that you backpack into in the high country. And I will be the first to admit, you know, our reservation system for many years has been sort of uh, lacking. So when our when the, the reservation system was kind of set up, um, the park wasn't receiving as much vegetation as we receive now. The park, you know, a few years ago, the National Park Service had our Find Your Park campaign, and it turned out that people did. They found their park, and it it's Big Ben. So <laughs> we've had a big <laughs> increase in visitation over the last few years. So... Um, I don't have, at this point, it's a little early for me to share a lot of the, the t- complete details, but we are going to be changing our reservation options uh, here in the near future, perhaps as early as this coming winter. We're going to provide okay. uh, many more reservable campsites in our campgrounds and potentially making those reservable year-round. And we also are working, as we speak, on putting... Um, a large number of our primitive campsites on um, a reservation system. So people will actually be able to plan their trip here perhaps as, as, as much as six months in advance. 
So that, that'll oh, wow. be a big change for Big Ben. You know, the problem is, you know, it's a long way from anywhere, and we realize it's really, really kind of poor customer service to expect someone to drive for 10 hours to come out to Big Bend and not know if they have a campsite or not. It's uh, unacceptable. So we're, we're changing that um, as we speak. There is lodging in the park as well. You know, the Chisos Mountains Lodge operates a hotel-like operation. It's in the Chisos Mountains, and there's 75 rooms there, a restaurant, gift shop, that sort of thing. And that's that's very popular. Um, those rooms often are booked up during the, the you know, the busy times of the year um, well in advance. So it's in anybody's best interest to plan ahead if they were hoping to stay in the lodge within the park. Um, but you are correct. You know, um, around the park, there's not a lot of communities right around the park. Uh, on the west end of the park is Terlingua, uh, Studi Butte Terlingua area. And there's, uh, there's a few hotel options out there. There's also some private camping options. And um, in recent years, just a whole crop of Airbnbs have popped up out there. Um, so a little bit of searching online, and you could find there's a surprising number of, of other options for lodging and, and staying in the area, even if the park is full. Okay, awesome. Thank you for that. Um, so uh, from my knowledge, this park doesn't allow campfires, right? Yeah, we do not allow campfires. Um in the campgrounds, there's uh, charcoal grills, you know, and if you wanted to use charcoal briquettes and things in the campground at those grills, that's okay. Uh, but no wood fires, no burning wood. And then out in the backcountry, uh, if you're backpacking, um, you know, a camp stove is what we, we ask people to use or have no fire whatsoever. And then out on the primitive roadsides, if you're camping out with your vehicle out on one of those Jeep roads, if you have a little charcoal grill, uh, that's fine, but again, charcoal and no wood. Some people bring little gas um, stoves and things like that. Okay, um, awesome. But surprisingly, yeah, we do actually have a very high fire danger here uh, much of the year, and particularly in the Chisos Mountains, there's a lot of a lot of vegetation, a lot of undergrowth, a lot of grass, and when most visitors come in the winter, it's a very again a very dry time of the year, and so we're in pretty high fire danger and it coincides with like our busiest visitor season so it's always a um, something that we're concerned with okay so you talked you mentioned about backpacking and that's one of the things i love to do you guys have some very interesting backpacking options do you want to talk a little bit about the backpacking trails there like which is some most popular and which you think that people should try out at least well um people do come here for all kinds of activities um you know, we the park attracts people, like I said, from around Texas and all over the world to float the rivers, to bird watch, to to hike. You know, day hikes. You could come here for weeks on end and not finish all the possible day hikes. Um, another attraction here, like you mentioned earlier, are scenic drives. We have um, well over a hundred miles of paved road that people can explore. Uh, most of them designed specifically to highlight some of the best scenery and attractions in the park. And then um, another well over 100 miles of primitive dirt roads that people could explore and spend days, hours, days out there in the backcountry exploring if you have the proper vehicle. Uh, backpacking is a, is a real big thing here. People come from all over the place to backpack here. 
you know, there's not a lot of public land in Texas, and this is one of the, the big coveted spots to come and explore. So the way we have the park set up for backpacking is essentially the whole park is open for backpacking. Um, if you are set and you have a pack and you have everything you need and you kind of have a plan on where you want to go, you just can come into one of our visitor centers and we'll write you a backcountry permit um, for a specific area out in the backcountry. You just you just tell us what trailhead you're heading out on and how many nights you're going to be out in that area, and uh, we're glad to work with you that way. So that's 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 a pretty cool thing to be able to do is just head out, head off the road, and go. Yeah, that's actually really awesome. I didn't know that. So yeah, and there's you know some places it's harder to travel than others, but you can go for days and days and days just exploring in the park and pitching your tent out there in the desert. Yeah, in the Chisos Mountains, it's a little more um, regulated. We have really well-established um, hiking trails. Um, we maintain them really well. And um, in the high country, we have those designated sites. So um, you get a backcountry permit, would be for a specific campsite, say Laguna Meadows, site number one. and um, We'd tell you where it is, show you on the map, and you, you know, folks can go online and kind of see the map of all the backpacking trails in the Chisos Mountains. It gets you way up high, um, way over 6,000 feet. Emory Peak's about 8,000 feet. Um, some of those sites are way out near what we call the South Rim, which is a just a giant 2,000-foot cliff um, that has the most expansive panoramic views of anywhere in the park. You can see from from that cliff, we call the South Rim, you can see every, everywhere from the far eastern side of the park all the way across to the far western side and way out into Mexico. It's just a real popular destination. And uh, you can do that as a 12 to 15 mile day hike, um, but better yet, you do it as a couple night overnight trip, um, staying in those campsites. It's pretty magical. The campsites themselves are a little designated spot. There's a little sign that says this is the campsite. They're all uh, isolated and secluded from each other. They're off the main trail. They don't really have any amenities besides a bear-proof food locker. Uh, each site has that you're required to put your food, water, and anything with an odor in it like sunscreen, stuff like that, in that locker just to ensure there aren't any issues with bears or javelina or skunks or Mexican Jays, um, those sorts of things. Oh, wow. Um, see, uh, I can attest to that because then if anybody's going for two days, definitely check out the Emory's Peak. If you like, that's one destination if you only have like a very limited time there. Like that's one thing you must do. Like you get, like when you get to the peak and you look out, you see a panoramic view, like you said, 360 of the entire park. It stretches for miles and miles and miles. It's big country, uh, yeah, and so it's, it's nice to get to a big uh, overlook like that, and you can just get a sense for how big the Big Bend really is. Yeah, I mean, you can from there you can see um, what's that canyon that divides the Mexico and and the United States. Yeah, okay. you know, from uh, from that South Rim or from Emory Peak, you can see all the way to Santa Elena Canyon, yeah. uh, way on the west end of the park. And then you can also actually also see way down on the east end, you can see uh, the Mexican village of Boquillas, and you can see the mouth of Boquillas Canyon from up there. And that's yeah. a big, that's a big expanse out there. 
Yeah, that's amazing view. I I genuinely like recommend anyone to try to go to that peak if you can. It is uh, at the t- at the tip. It is a little bit scramble, but you can make it. I've seen a lot of people all ages made it. You can do it. Just want to give Thomas a thank you for joining us on this episode. He will be on the next episode, so look out for that. If you want to hear a certain park or outdoor adventure, please go to www.daystravel.com. Go to the podcast page, scroll all the way down, and email me. And I also want to give a shout out to all my Patreon contributors because this episode wouldn't be possible without you guys. I'm Jason, and I'll talk to you next time.